When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Melbourne edition. It's Wednesday, June 7th, 2017. On today's show, Wonder Woman is not the first superhero movie to feature a female lead, but it is being greeted as a breakthrough, not only for the lead character, the title character, but for its plausibly feminist themes and for being helmed by Patty Jenkins. And then stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone. In a matter of minutes, Melbourne's own Courtney Barnett will be sitting to my right, answering my questions, standing to my left, playing. Yeah. And people, I'm only reading the words written down here, playing and discussing her fucking kick-ass music. (laughs) I love Courtney Barnett. All right. Uh, And finally, Michael Williams, the director of The Wheeler, who you just met, Wheeler Center, will join us on stage for a freewheeling discussion about travel, stereotyping, and how we form our cultural perceptions of place, i.e., what is it about Americans and kangaroos? (laughs) (laughs) Joining me today is uh, Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Uh, should we dig in? Wonder Woman has been in development purgatory for years, maybe as long as a decade, but it finally hits the grand giant global multiplex this weekend. It stars Gail Gadot. Is that how you say it? I, th- I went on the internet because I knew I was going to fuck it up either way. And I think <laughs> that spoils the thing in my head of just thinking of it the whole movie as g'day g'day <laughs> ever since we saw it g'day g'day that that joke came pre-ruined but uh as she stars the as uh, diana she's never once referred to as wonder woman in the entire movie and the movie is down the line an origin story diana i, I i'm sure i do not have this right Diana is the daughter of Zeus, and she's being raised as a member of the hidden tribe of Amazonian warriors. No, she's the... What the hell, dude? They said... <laughs> the whole plot of the movie is that she's the, not the daughter of Zeus. What? Oh, is, no, wait. It is, oh. <laughs> 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 All right, continue. I'm the one who repeatedly fell asleep in the screening, Julia. <laughs> um uh, anyway, uh, she's still a young demigoddess in training when an airplane crashes into the nearby ocean, thus intersecting the sapphic playland of her childhood with the real world, with World War I and with Chris Pine, not necessarily in that order of priority. Um, we'll get to the gritty specifics in a moment, but first, let's listen to a clip. Please slow down, Diana. That's your leader? How could he say that? Believe that? And, and you, with your duty to simply give them a book, no. you didn't stand your ground. You, you didn't fight. Because there was no chance of changing his mind. This is Aries, and he's not going to allow a negotiation or a surrender. The millions of people you talked about, they will die. We are Might going we... anyway. You mean you were lying? 
I'm a spy. That's what I do. How do I know? You're not lying to me right now. I am taking you to the front. We are probably going to die. This is a terrible idea. We're going to need reinforcements. All right. I, what percentage of this room is going to see this movie? Wait, clap. You have to clap for <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> well, don't make them decide until they've heard our segment. Oh, well, there we go. All right. Well, um, I'll begin with you, Dana. This is a uh, um, a noble, a noble uh, gesture, right? But let's separate out uh, the uh, social nobility of the movie and its feminist, you know, p- possible feminism from uh, whether or not the movie is any good. Did you like it? I very much liked it. I would say with a few squeancy reservations that we'll get to later, I loved this movie and was completely surprised at how much I loved it and was thinking that, you know, I mean, I think anyone who listens to our show regularly knows how burned out I am as a critic on writing on superhero comic book movies. There are good ones, there are bad ones, there are in-between ones, but when it comes down to it, there is a sameness to them, and uh, and I think this movie breaks out of it pretty impressively. And I did go in thinking, well, at the very most, this is going to be a sort of you go girl experience or something like that. And I was actually moved. I cried at least twice. <laughs> um, I thought you cried. I did also you hear cried. me whimper? There was a little moment. Julie was sitting next to me in the screening, and <laughs> I I was getting sniffly, and I sort of went. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I got I got a little sniffly too, but it was an apnea snort. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I will get to some of the reasons why, but the overwhelming adjective that occurs to me, and this is probably going to end up leading my review of the movie as well, was delicate, which is not something that you would often think about a superhero movie. I mean, Gal Gadot herself has a sort of balletic grace to her that is not your typical kind of busty pneumatic. She's not a, like a Linda Carter kind of, you know, I don't know. She, she's not the comic book shape of a woman, and she has a delicacy in her performance. And the movie itself has a kind of delicacy. And I know that that sounds strange in relation to a big, you know, DC blockbuster, but didn't you find that, Julia, as well? I loved this movie. I feel like one of the things this movie swirls about in a gigantic muddle, a lovable muddle, is the notion that women deserve equality because they are the same and they are human and that women should rule us all because they are noble and better. (laughs) Right. I definitely think the second idea is wrong, 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 wrong. Uh, and so delicate is a, is like raising a hackle for me because I think there's a, there's a part of this movie that are, that suggests that Diana, because of her, womanhood is truly peace loving and wants to bring peace to mankind in a way that made me feel a little bit squeancy. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, the movie has more subtlety and moral complexity than these movies typically do. You could basically argue that this is a movie about like interventionism versus isolationism that it takes place. So the original origin story of, of Wonder Woman is that she comes out of this kind of timeless all female warrior Island, uh, rescues this, uh, pilot, American pilot and enters world war two. And that's where she enters the world war one. No, but in the, the original oh, origin story sorry. of the character is world war two. This movie shifts it back to world war one. Um, and so it's basically a movie about, about chemical weapons. Like it's a movie about mustard gas, mustard gas. The evil doers in the movie are trying to murder innocent women and children. It's like essentially a movie about Syria. Like the, the moral conflicts of it are basically the moral conflicts facing the nation, like the world right now. Um, and it doesn't shy away from them until the film's 
final act uh, where the motivating, the truly motivating rage is not the death of innocent children at the hand of weapons, but uh, the p- potential risks to Chris Pine. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but for much of the movie, it like fairly seriously contemplates all these issues while being very beautiful and fun. And I will say, as someone who is ambivalent about uh, superhero movies generally, I also cried at this movie. I cried at the opening scene, which is like a founding scene in the character in the history of the comics too, where she rescues this pilot. So the pilot, his plane crashes into the ocean. He's being pulled under the waves and she pulls him out of a plane and she rescues him and she uses her strong body to save his dying one. And I just wept like it. I've never seen that. And I was like, how is it fucking possible a hundred years into Hollywood that I've never seen this before? And I, and I also, it made me realize like, oh, maybe this is why people like superhero movies because they get to see themselves be really fucking strong and awesome. And why has no one ever shown me that before? Yes. I had the exact same reaction and I had a moment of thinking, you know, I think, well, obviously, right? It, if if what we're used to seeing in superhero comic book movies or the comic books themselves is always big strong dude faces off against other big strong dude, then it, of course it, it gets boring after a while, right? The question is just which of the two big strong dudes is stronger. But it, it but as soon as you put someone in that equation who is not usually in a position of fighting a big strong dude, um yeah, it completely changes everything and I started to kind of understand what had seemed to me kind of simplistic debates about representation. I didn't, I wasn't sitting around thinking, oh, boo-hoo, I need to be represented by a superhero, you know? Yes. But, but it was sort of like thought. an itch that I did not know needed scratching. And I didn't cry at the rescue of Chris Pine, but in, in very similar scenes, in moments when essentially, yeah, the, the physical might and also moral might, because she is quite a, uh, I mean, I suppose you could say she's kind of a goody two-shoes of a heroine, you know, in the, in the Superman DC tradition, but she has a, a kind of moral righteousness that you see in that clip that we showed. And that, that really moved me too, that she wasn't dark and brooding and kind of exploring her dark side. She was someone who was against war, was trying to end war itself, not just this specific war. And there's some interesting and I think fairly complex stuff late in the movie where she and Chris Pine get into arguments about, well, are we trying to just end this war and solve this problem? Or or are we trying to, as she says in that clip, you know, kill the god Ares and thus Mm. put an end to, to war as an institution? Backing up a little bit though, Julia, how would you compare her technique in rescuing Chris Pine with Dwayne the Rock Johnson's technique <laughs> in rescuing the guy, like neck in terms of neck support. And well, he would just—it was unlikely that he would have had a spinal injury from that. I think she did better than the Rock. Um, th- <laughs> while we're on the subject, <laughs> um, but I also think that Gal Gadot does, or what did you, Gadot got it? Gadot. Anyway, she, Gal, uh, Wonder Woman, does, she does an, a remarkable job with performing the goody two-shoesness and naivete of this character. I mean, she basically has to play sort of like the, the woman child naive, like the power naive who comes to the modern world and is like, what's this? You know, it's sort of like Ariel and the Little Mermaid, like a telephone, like teacup, like she's, she's so perplexed. <laughs> um, and yet she doesn't play it as a ditz. And she retains this kind of vitality and moral clarity that isn't always, um, she's really good. Simple to apply. Yeah. No, she's really good. All right. Can I, can I levy two complaints uh, about the movie? Astrocies. Are we going to let men talk Astros- in this? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not. But. 
uh, but here they come. So, uh, uh, jokingly on a, on a radio show yesterday, I said, um, I'll judge this movie on one metric and that's whether it comes in at less than a buck 20, you know, 120 minutes, knowing full well that it was going to be closer to 240 than 120. Like I, there is something about the genre, the superhero genre. I mean, the business model essentially changed, right? In the old days, you told an interesting story. You got it in at about 90 minutes, maybe two hours. It was tight. It was crafted and, brought the audience along with it. And now it's really about entering, it's about two things. It's about entering a world, right? Making a world this enormously appealing place so that fanboys and girls go the opening weekend in order to re-enter the world. And plot and craft to me to seem to be, seem to me to be extremely incidental to that business model. And so you, in order to go along with this genre, you have to really like large, baggy, sort of out of control, vaguely plotless and chaotic movies that end with a 40 minute bludgeon fest. Right. And, um, so in that sense, it, 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 for all of what was non-traditional about it from a feminist point of view, it's incredibly traditional in terms of what the state of the genre is. But the second thing I would ask, and this, I, I, I say this tentatively, right. But, you know, how healthy is it for anybody in the first place, regardless of gender, to take derive any sense of self or agency from superhero movies? Right? You could make an entire an entirely uh, gender studies style argument about how young men have been destroyed by like these ridiculous ideals of being huge, muscular, and beating the crap out of your enemy. Is it is it so simple to say that it's a, that it represents a form of progress? to extend that uh, paradigm to your gender. Oh, my God. (laughs) Who are you? Raise your hand. That guy is inspired by you, Steve, that guy. I love love the dead silence from the rest of the crowd, though. (laughs) I mean, I I guess the thing that was striking to me about it, like Dana, I had no craving for this. I was not sitting around. I mean, there were people on the internet being like, when are they going to make a freaking Wonder Woman movie? How can they possibly put out another non-Wonder Woman movie? What's wrong with them? I was not among those people. But you get, you do get to see powerful women on screen wielding other kinds of power, not as many as men probably, more in the last 10 years than in the 40 before that probably. But you're, it's familiar to see women exert Power of persuasion, power of being, you know, emotionally savvy know-it-alls, but different kinds of power you do get to see them exert. The power of like just sheer physical ability, capability, and strength. It was like a jolt, a representational jolt that I didn't know I wanted. And yes, I guess if all I ever got was that and I never saw women be capable in any other way, that would be a bad outcome. I think we are fairly far from from that day. Yeah, I I guess and the only thing I would add is that I mean it, it's to ask that question when finally a movie comes along that represents a group that never gets represented in that huge slab of popular culture and suddenly to say, "Oh, let's rethink the entire superhero movie." You know? I mean <laughs> like it it would be it would probably be a great thing for our culture if we had far fewer tentpole blockbuster movies. Period. It would definitely be a good thing for the film industry if there weren't so many of these movies on which the rest of the economy depends. But 
given that that machine is churning along, I just, it doesn't, it doesn't seem the worst thing to me that little girls are going to buy Wonder Woman costumes no, at the store and, you know, feel empowered to use a wildly overused word. Of course. And not. I think that this movie does because it, it, it does make her this kind of morally mighty as well as physically mighty person yeah. that it is more than just a bludgeon fest at the end. I completely agree the movie is too long by at least 20 minutes and that, yes, that kind of generic scene in which various baddies in this, in this case, they're sort of, two baddies succeeding each other get blown away in some way is is boring we've all seen it before and that feels and that feels like it's fan service and it's a thing that you have to do because it's a big superhero comic book movie yeah that's where that's where wonder woman must point her lasso of truth next is like she's against war but what she has not yet conquered is the arms race of the third act battle mm-hmm. and like the, <laughs> just dumb third act battle and you have to have a big long one and that's where the cgi comes in and there's flying metal and you zoom through the fire and the guy you think he's dead and then he comes back but he is that like they just like every single one is the same in the boring. And I actually disagree that the first two thirds of the movie is a lot like other movies. I think probably it's a little similar mm-hmm. to the Captain America ones that have kind of the retroness and the earnestness. Yeah, it's a romance. It's a period yeah, romance. I mean, that, that scene that you see. Drama. This movie really changed you, didn't it? Didn't it? <laughs> I can tell by the vigor with which my devil, devil's advocacy ricocheted back into my own face. <laughs> And by the way, Melbourne, I noted how vigorously you applauded her comment <laughs> over between you and me. I see who you really are now. All right. Well, the movie's Wonder Woman. It's uh, it's everywhere. Uh, go see it. Come to Facebook.com slash CultureVest and tell us what you thought of it. All right. Moving on. Hey, listeners. One note before we go back to our amazing Melbourne show. You are about to hear our segment with Courtney Barnett, an amazing Australian musician, who, I should say, I am disappointed in all of you that I was not taught about Courtney Barnett by any of you in our summer struts of summer's past, because her music is eminently struttable, as you will soon learn. Um, in any event, submissions for the 2017 summer strut are closing this week. Please send them in by Friday, June 9th. You can either submit them on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest, where there is a special thread dedicated to summer strut songs, or you can tweet them with the hashtag summer strut. Uh, thank you again for your submissions and for listening. Summer strut always results in a great playlist for all of us. So please do your part. All right, back to Melbourne. Courtney Barnett put out a couple of EPs about five years ago, and from that point on, her life as a musician and a songwriter, I have to guess, has been something of a blur. Some things are just too good not to notice, care about, and share with everyone you know. Her music is one of those things she broke through in our little country with her debut album, Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit. That was in 2015. It somehow is just such a great record. I mean, I love that record. It's somehow both conversational and filled with bedazzling wordplay. It's somehow melodic and yet knows how and when to drone. She can patter and talk sing with anyone. But when my very discriminating, no bullshit, 11-year-old daughter heard the very first bars of Depreston, she leaned back in the backseat of the car, closed her eyes and said, ah, that voice. Anyway, uh, why lard it up uh, any longer with uh, adjectives and words from me when we have her improbably right here in the building? Please welcome to the stage, Courtney Barnett. (laughs) 
I wish to look out further I guess it wouldn't hurt us We don't have to be around all these coffee shops Now we've got that percolator Never made a latte greater I'm saving $23 a week drive to a house in Preston we see police arrested a man with his hand in a bag how's that for first impressions this place seems depressing it's a Californian bungalow in a cul-de-sac It's got a lovely garden And a garage for two cars to park in Or a lot of room for storage if you've just got one And it's going pretty cheap, you say Well, it's a deceased to stay On the press metal ceiling's great Then I see the handrail in the shower A collection of those canisters for coffee, tea and flour And a photo of a young man in a van in Vietnam And I can't think of floorboards anymore Whether the front room faces south or north And I wonder what she bought it for I think I speak for the whole panel when I say we've never been this intimidated in our <laughs> in our careers as 
culture gap festers. <laughs> that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. Um, and one of the things I love about that song uh, uh, to Preston is that, you know, we've just lived through this, like how defining is real estate and going to look at real estate and talking about fucking real estate. And <laughs> I mean, it's just become this kind of worldview organizing fact of all of our lives. And through the power of like, you know, verbal condensation, you really captured a, the experience of just going to look at a fricking property. Right. But, but the, 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 the embedded short story of the lives of the people who lived in the house and, and then just through those few details and then that exactly what a realtor would actually say, right? Just obliterating all of that little embedded gem in this throwaway sentence. And it's just that song is a work of art it just isn't it is it's a masterpiece it's like a it's a short story but it's even more than a short story right it's like got novelistic anyway i told you i can't i played that song especially for you because you said your <laughs> child i know something like it and the thing is it was all i could do because when we play it my daughter sings along to the whole thing but then i join her an octave down on <laughs> cool half million. And I was like, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Like Melbourne's a nerdy city, but it's not that fucking nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that everyone's embarrassed for me, where to start? I have this idea somehow that uh, kind of from your music, but also from some of the interviews I was reading and various things I saw on YouTube that the world kind of getting what you were doing Right. And kind of picking it up and taking it up and making you suddenly more visible, um, might have been not confusing, but maybe not the most natural mode for you. Cause a lot of your music is sort of about being both invisible and wanting to be seen. Has it been kind of a crazy blur the last four, five years? Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a weird, um, it's a weird balance between, uh, writing songs from that very kind of private, personal space. And then I guess secretly everyone wants a bit of attention. <laughs> but then when it comes, it's um, kind of terrifying. And that, that um, yeah, that connection, which, which I guess I didn't think about when I was writing any of the songs or when I write songs now, but... Yeah, it's nice when people connect, but then it's also kind of um, you kind of realize that people are having the same yeah. terrors as you. We, I was uh, I read somewhere that you started out as something of a shy singer, and it took a while to and and in fact, in some ways, that's surprising because you're a beautiful singer and right and now a seasoned performer or whatever. But <laughs> it's like amazing how many people in the history of rock and roll started out as shy singers, like people you wouldn't expect, like Jim Morrison. Had to sing with his back to the audience for a long time. Van Morrison's still, you know, intensely shy and uh, stage frighty. What was what was it like for you to kind of find a performing voice? And uh, yeah, well, it's a weird one because I think it's that idea that that kind of big idea of what people have of what a great singer is, and I didn't think I fit that that mold of like a beautiful kind of uh, I don't know what it was, but. Uh, I would always just play guitar for the singers at school and um and and I started busking around Hobart with this girl who was a great singer and I would just play guitar for her because I thought that um that I couldn't sing and then I started 
um, I read a lot of poetry when I was a kid and I started just kind of, um, reading it out over, over music and, and, um, to see what melody came out of it. And then, and it kind of evolved into something. I don't think I'm a terrible singer, but some people do, but I guess that's, uh, that's <laughs> personal. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, you got to call some serious bullshit on anyone who thinks you're not a good singer. But it did, it's funny because it did, it in, totally informed your songwriting, if I'm not mistaken, that you might have thought that you were not a traditionally great singer because so much of it is, it has a somewhat spoken quality to it and like a patter quality to it. And, but it seems as though your music is maybe moving away from that into a more melodic direction. I know you're working on new songs. What's, uh, mm -hmm. is it, is, is there a different character to them now that you're years and years into this or? Yeah, it's just a opera album. <laughs> <laughs> the next one. Jazz standards. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I'm, I guess it's kind of in the same vein. It definitely kind of moves all over the place, but I felt like my last album, I felt like a lot of the songs were quite different, um, sounding like style stylistically. And I was worried how they would go together, but I think the kind of the idea and the voice, um, brings it all together. But I think, um, yeah, the next album, it keeps it keeps changing. I think I just I like so much different music that I sit at the piano at home and I write all these kind of beautiful things that I forget straight away because I don't really know how to play piano. So once I've done it, it's kind of gone. But that's also nice. <laughs> uh, so so it hit me listening to your music in very intense bursts. It's kind of been the soundtrack of of my Australia trip, and the flight alone <laughs> gave me a lot of time to hear it. Um, but it, it struck me that a, a theme, an ongoing theme in your song seems to be ambivalence. And, uh, I'm thinking of like the, the song that has the chorus, I want to go out, but I want to stay home or even depressed in the song you just played, this feeling about, you know, being drawn to something, being repulsed by it at the same time. And that is just not a very common emotion in pop music, right? I mean, there's usually rage and passion and kind of pure intense emotions and not things like, sort of ambivalence and indecision. I don't know if you have anything to say about that observation, but I mean, w what do you think ambivalence is doing in your songs and in pop music? I think I spend a lot of my um, time kind of dwelling on um, the kind of purpose and meaning of everything and all those kind of big, uh, big picture things. But I think I kind of swing... I swing really easily between like kind of very, um, very up and very down and very like kind of having a purpose and not having a purpose. So I think the songs kind of follow that weird kind of wave. I have a question about how you, how you figure out whether a particular moment is songable. Like so many of your songs feature really specific descriptions of particular individual moments, often kind of mundane moments like that feeling of like, oh, it's time to get dressed to go to the thing, but I don't want to go to the thing, but I don't want to not have gone to the thing. <laughs> like the, but, you know, or the, or the great song about ramen packets or about staring at a wall. Like you really wrote a song, a great song about staring at a wall. <laughs> How do you like, but presumably 
you stare at a wall for, I don't know, 10, 20 minutes. Like, how do you, like when you pick up your mail, how, how do you know whether this mail pickup moment, <laughs> like the, the feeling of opening the envelope, you're like, this is a song. Um, like, how do you, like, you can't, you obviously can't turn every mundane moment of your day into a song, but how do you get the feeling of, oh, this might be a thing of a thread to pull? Uh, that's a good question. And a lot of the time people are like, write a song about it whenever something happens to me. Um, but, uh, I, I think it's a fine line between finding what is kind of interesting and has a line that goes off it that means something that's not just, I don't know, evolves into some sort of story or point or like higher kind of meaning. That's not just like, Oh, I don't want to get out of bed because that's kind of boring after a while that <laughs> repeating that same idea. So I think, yeah, if it blossoms into a bigger thing, then it, um, it, it kind of finds, um, relevance. Of some and do you sort. feel like you kind of know, do you sort of play with, okay, I'm going to have some thoughts about ramen and sort of see whether that adds up to something or can you kind of tell whether a a <laughs> moment is inert or rich from the, from the get? Uh, I think, I think sometimes it, it jumps out, it jumps out and, and, and it, and it seems important. Uh, that song kind of started as a joke, the ramen <laughs> song. <laughs> um, but then I don't know, it kind of, I guess it is a bit jokey, but it kind of has a, a deeper meaning to me anyway. So, so this is a little bit away from music, but I'm, I'm curious about, um, visual renderings of your music and how that figures in your, you know, process of composition. Like you designed your album cover, um, and backstage you gave us some great merch that was literally based on little drawings by you. And, uh, and your videos, when I watch your music videos seem to have a very strong visual idea. Um, there's one that's animated, right? The Dead Fox video is an animation. Uh, another one has you as a clown in full clown makeup, sadly riding around on little <laughs> carnival rides. Yeah. Another has you playing, um, doubles tennis. And so they're, they're narrative and they also have just a very strong, look to them that's that's sort of witty and silly and i'm just wondering how well how much of a hand you have in the way the videos look for one thing and also how you know the process of drawing or the fact that you like to draw fits into being a songwriter yeah i um well like i kind of i played guitar i think i started playing kind of live um when i was 18 before i went to art school in hobart but um so I kind of started drawing or I like the idea of of uh going to art school and learning how to be an artist, but I don't think I really kind of got there. I dropped out and uh started playing music more. I moved to Melbourne and kind of um started doing it more, but I guess they all they always kind of went together and the drawing and, and um visual art kind of always just was a extension of ideas so I write a lot and then illustration stuff is is kind of an extension of those ideas and and videos as well like I kind of have always um written out like when I wrote the last album I wrote um I wrote out like these full page pages long um treatments of videos for each song. Oh wow. <laughs> and um it was a bit extreme maybe. But um <laughs> but it was fun and it kind of stretched the imagination and and made you made me think of um everything from different angles and and um 
And so, yeah, I, I quite enjoy that and I enjoy seeing that come to life and, and then kind of, yeah, giving that idea to someone who knows what they're doing, um, like a director or, and then, yeah. Do the videos follow the, the path that you laid out in your, in yeah. your thinking? Yeah. yeah, I think so. I had the feeling. I'm glad I asked that question because I usually don't like music videos as a genre because they seem like someone else's interpretation of the artist's music. And, uh, and yours have some kind of, I don't know, they just, they do feel like they kind of burst from the same mind that wrote the songs. Oh, good. <laughs> I mean, it's no total eclipse of the heart, right, Danny? <laughs> but That's a good video. That's, yes. <laughs> Steve and I were just exchanging Deathless. it this week. Um, the truth is, I think I love your music too much to, talk about it in a way bizarrely <laughs> i just can't be analytic with it but it makes me realize every time we've ever had a creator on the show and i've been like a suave host it was because i basically thought they suck <laughs> but, um so i'm out of questions i don't know what to do should we play another song yes oh that'd sure. be awesome okay Picked another Melbourne uh, song. Head of hair worries, he's going bald. Wakes up at a quarter past nine. Fair evades his way down the 96 tram line. Breakfast's on the run again, he's well away. He's dropping soil in seed, Vegemite comes everywhere. At the side of his computer He dodges his way through the Swanston commuters Rips off his tie Hands it to a homeless man Sleeping in the corner of a metro bus And he screams I'm not going to work today Going to count the minutes That the trains run late Sit on the grass Building pyramids out of cocaine. To the Nicholas building He trips on a pothole That's not been filled in He waits for an elevator One, two, nine A lady walks in Or waits by his side Her heels are high And her bag is snakeskin Hair pulled so tight You can see her skeleton Thick as perfume On her breath A tortoiseshell necklace Between her breasts She looks in up and down with a Botox frown He's well used to that look by now The elevator dings and they awkwardly step in Their fingers touch on the rooftop button Don't jump, little boy, don't jump with that roof You've got your whole life ahead of you Still in you I'd give anything to have skin like you 
he said, I think you're projecting the way that you're feeling. I'm not suicidal, just idling insignificantly. I come up here for perception and clarity. I like to imagine I'm playing Sim City. All the people look like ants from up here. And the wind's the only traffic you can hear. He said, all I ever wanted to be was an elevator operator. Ladies and gentlemen, Courtney Barnett. don't know how long steve has been fanboying about this segment it's just not real it's just not what just happened to me it just isn't all right i have to collect myself here for a second moving on michael williams is the director of the wheeler center and a contributor to the guardian and the sydney morning herald among other publications he was a host for my new favorite morning radio show breakfast on three Three triple R. Um, he joins us uh, uh, to talk about travel, cultural stereotyping, and how we form our notions of place and various other things. It's going to be a freewheeling discussion. Michael, come up. That's a hard act to follow. Sublime to ridiculous. Right there. I was going to say, I'm so sorry, dude. No. Someone tell me Stephen's been fanboying about this moment as well, please. Because otherwise I'm going to be really deflated. Yeah, if I host this segment really well and really smoothly, don't take it personally. Oh, no. <laughs> Too late. I'm thinking of all your listeners who are going to be recognizing themselves in that statement, going, oh, he never liked what I did. <laughs> no. And we'll never get another guest again, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm going to set the bar really low here because looking at my notes, I don't think I have a first question. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, one of the things we were going to talk about is um, Americans form cultural stereotypes uh, and tend to look at the world through cultural stereotypes. And to that, I just want to say that could be an unfair stereotype of Americans. But first, I'd like to thank you so much for taking us to pet the kangaroos at the zoo today. <laughs> it. There are a lot of intimidating things about being on a stage with you, but one of the intimidating things we had ahead of today was we normally do a field trip. You know, you do a field trip when you go to do a live show. And so we felt we had to impress upon you the breadth of culture that was available in Australia. So we went and we fed some kangaroos. <laughs> and then we got avocado toast. Yeah, 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 basically... 
these guys are never buying real estate in Australia because they've eaten avocado toast. But yes. there was something that felt a bit base about that. But it's this extraordinary thing. We're so immersed in US culture. You know, if we visit, I remember the first time I ever went to New York and the shock was familiarity. Like you walk the streets, you can't see a police car without hearing the law and order, dung dung, like the second you see it. You're from Seinfeld to you see a stoop and you think of Sesame Street. It's there, we're immersed in it culturally from a very young age here. And yet we have the uh, inferiority complex of the younger sibling. We, our Prime Minister has a phone call with your President and um, leaving aside whether your President knows the Prime Minister's name, when there is a media story off the back of it, actually the cultural touchstone for most Americans seem to be the Simpsons Australia episode. That seemed to be about as much thinking about Australia as most Americans We do. also know about Crocodile Dundee, Foster's <laughs> Australian for beer and shrimp on the barbie. Yeah, and the done. dingo ate your baby. And <laughs> platypus. See, I, I love this. We're, we're joined by the most culturally literate people we can find. <laughs> and, and this is where we find ourselves. And so that's what I guess with a Melbourne audience here who adore you, who listen to your cultural tips week in, week out, I suspect they want to know what your earliest impressions of Australia are, what the cultural things that you've based your understanding of this place on. Quigley down under? Bi- like biographically earliest in our lives, yeah. right? Ugh. Well, <laughs> I began by reading Robert Hughes' The Fatal Shore. <laughs> <laughs> Dana. He was a... He was a precocious lad, as we all know, was Master Metcalf. Uh, I mean, I think I'm going to have to say, and now I'm going to, if he's from New Zealand, I'm going to jump off the edge of the stage, but <laughs> Steve Irwin, probably Steve Irwin on TV. No, that's absolutely fine. The good news is if he's from New Zealand but successful, we claim him as Australian anyway. <laughs> so you would have been completely fine. Steve Irwin, good, good tip. It's, uh, what was it, what impression did you get of Australia from watching Steve Irwin? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think this this probably gets to a cultural stereotype about Australians that you also gather and travel because Australians, I mean, I think just by necessity, because you're so geographically removed from, you know, many parts of the world are are very hardy travelers. And so I do remember when traveling in Europe, not on a URL pass, but that sort of bopping from town to town in Europe, coming across Australians who were very hardcore travelers and who had a little bit of that Steve Irwin quality of just sturdy, you know, like I've got a backpack and I'm going across Mongolia, you know, that kind of person. (laughs) What I like is if ever there was an audience that was mutually exclusive with that, it's a Melbourne-based podcast crowd. (laughs) (laughs) These people have never strapped on a backpack in their lives, but (laughs) don't be disappointed by that. What about you, Julia? Uh, my earliest encounters with Australia were twofold. One, uh, I went to a girls summer camp in Maine, in the piney woods of Maine, and some some of the same hardy world traveling Australians had been conscripted as girls camp counselors and, uh, Jenny taught me swimming. Very robust. Um, and then I loved the movie Strictly Ballroom, which I went, I forget when it came out exactly, but I was... It was probably early 90s, right? Early 90s. 92, yeah. 93? Um, I love that movie. And it's obviously not a movie that's about Australia particularly, but I was aware of its Australian provenance and uh, felt that it's like specificity and interestingness and strangeness 
um, made me interested in the place. I have a, I have an answer in a slightly different vein, which is, you know, we're forced to live at the center of this cultural, you know, imperium in a way. And we get sick of looking at the police siren and hearing, dum dum, you know, I mean, and, and also somewhat sick of the, <laughs> uh, of the burden of, um, uh, of all the associations people have about us, um, as Americans. And there's a part of me that just looks at Canada or Australia with this longing, like a place that has much of what's, if not all of what's actually good about my country, minus all of what bloody sucks about my country, plus universal health care. Like, <laughs> plus kangaroos. I, <laughs> right, right. Plus adorable fauna um, and occasionally exotic fauna. And I think, why wouldn't I move there? I mean, it's, it's interesting that the cu- cultural projection, kind of the negative image of what you were kind of uh, uh, sending towards us is sort of thrown back onto onto you i i think i mean there was a an essay written in the 1950s by a critic called a.a phillips here in australia called the cultural cringe and it was more concerned with our relationship with england as a relatively young colonial experiment and the fact that invasion was a recent enough memory and the trying to build a kind of discrete cultural identity was an exercise that we was in the fifties still largely unformed. You'd speak to a certain generation of Australian and they would talk about England as home still. Uh, that was fresh enough in the memory. And weirdly enough now, wherever we are 60, almost 70 years on, the idea of the cultural cringe is still a pervasive one. We still measure the merit of what we produce based on how it measures up to cultural output from elsewhere, I think. Maybe that's unfair. Are you, I mean, do you, because there are endless think pieces. The New York Times has just opened a bureau in Australia. And uh, amongst the things they've done that maybe not to be critical of them, they get enough from that, of that from your president. But uh, one of the slightly tone-deaf things they did was promote the upcoming bureau with endless pictures of a person hanging out of a kangaroo's pouch uh, <laughs> typing on a keyboard. And, uh, that sounds obviously, cozy. Uh, no, it was gorgeous. And obviously it's gratifying that they've heard of us so we won't complain. <laughs> but that's the thing is that the awareness is kind of in archetypes at best, I guess. And so that's why I'm curious, you know, jokes aside – did you coming here have preconceptions about the kinds of cities that were going to meet you, the kinds of uh, people you were going to be talking with? Well, I just want to stipulate before we move off the fauna and before you give us too much shit about the fauna, it's on your currency. Like it's on your coins. You guys are leaning into it. I just want to stipulate we're not the only idiots who think about it. So is the queen. It doesn't mean we like her. (laughs) Why is the queen still on your coins? Uh, We're regressive in many ways. Yeah. But, I mean, the thing that was interesting to me is, and I have a a policy generally with travel where I like to not learn about the place before I go there, and that may sound idiotic, but I I don't – I once went to the Greek islands – and had the feeling in my head of like I was comparing to see whether they looked like the Parliament ads. I don't know if you guys had the same ads here, but Parliament cigarettes in the States had this campaign the whole 90s, my whole youth. It was just like beautiful pictures of Mykonos or other Greek islands. And I just I felt like I was like checking off in my head like, yes, I have seen the white thing and the blue domes and the, the green sea and the white sand like and the black sand. like, I, And I, I just felt so icky. And so I, when I know I'm going somewhere cool, I just kind of want to wait and 
have it sprung on me and encounter it fresh. Um, and it's been really amazing this week, uh, spending a few days in Sydney and a few days in Melbourne to kind of get a little bit, you, you can't help but learn a little bit of like, oh, okay, so Melbourne is like the cultural capital. Okay. So it's kind of an art, oh, it's a music city. It's a coffee city. You sort of build out this set of preconceptions, even if you're trying not to learn too much that become the hypothesis. And then you have a set of encounters in the city where you're like, well, there sure are a lot of coffee shops and this coffee is delicious. And these people do look creative and they're all of their jackets are asymmetrical and their scarves are amazing. I must be in a cultural capital. Um, and so I've, I feel great about Melbourne. Like what a cosmopolitan, amazing, well-coffeed, well-scarfed city. These are my people, <laughs> but I kind of came in looking for it and, and we were here, you know, and of course we've hosted, being hosted by a literary temple and introduced to all, all sorts of magical singing elves of beauty. And <laughs> like, I'm like, what an incredible place. And then we were in the, ele- in the elevator in the hotel the other night and overheard just like a boring conversation between two boring type people that just were making kind of dumb, mildly homophobic observations about the dinner mate they'd just left. And I was like, oh, shoot, there are lame people in Melbourne, too. We're just not being introduced to them. So that sense of how you, both how you get that hypothesis of a place and then how your specific encounters with the details of a place add up to your sense of it yeah, are so sure. confusing. I mean, even my husband and I went out to Chinese food the other night, um, and even just the takeout container was just different than the ones we have in New York. It had a clear bottom instead of a black one. It was taller and thinner. And you're just like, oh, so part of the place, part of the sense of place is yeah. like this takeout container. <laughs> if yeah. you're from here, this is what a takeout container is to you. <sighs> And that's part of your sense of travel too. And, yeah. and it's real. And, and that's part of, you know, some ca- global capitalist channel that's, you know, supplying the, the containers, you know, that there, there is an actual reality that makes material daily existence right. different. May, are the plastic regulations here different? Is it that the supply chain goes to China instead? Like, it's like, well, I don't know why it's different, but it, that gives you that specific sense of place. And that's not part of any hypothesis. So go to Melbourne, the takeout containers are. You won't believe them. <laughs> They're on the currency, actually. But no, you, 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 you gin up a weird confirmation, uh, or weird bias that you then go in search of confirmation for, um, and along the way get, get hopefully to know the, the place for what it really is. But I'm curious to throw the question back at you. I mean, there can't be anything in the world that is more, you know, tempting to stereotype, uh, than an American. Right. Um, and so you have hypothesized that we're shallow, provincial, um, you know, uh, imperial blithe snobs, uh, who, <laughs> who come uh, with a completely shallow conception of your culture. But how have we, uh, confirmed that for you? <laughs> I hope you're not saying I'm wrong because that, <laughs> I think that I just is well confirmed. No, look, obviously, based on your recent electoral cycle, you're wise people who have <laughs> who exercise good judgment and understand the world at large. Uh, no, we're we're much more a classic younger sibling. We revere U.S. culture, or we revere the best of it. We're not naive about, I think, the uh, breadth of it and the way in which so much of it. Um, I think there's a period of kind of rampant anti. Americanism possibly amongst the Australian kind of smug in a city for a little while there. But um, I think by and large, 
uh, as culture gets increasingly globalized, we look to the best examples of things. And uh, one of the nice things, for example, about American TV at the moment is that the breadth of uh, channels from which it comes, whether it's streaming, whether it's smaller studios, the fact that it's not uh, monolithic in the way that maybe it was a few years ago, I think means that we turn to it. We talk about the golden age of TV just as much as you do, and we're probably talking overwhelmingly about American product when we do it. And I think that's interesting. We don't assume the worst. We assume that both the best and worst, the extremes are what we're going to be, what we're going to have available to us. The other thing I would say is cultural criticism in this country is languishing in lots of different ways. Our conventional media is struggling. It's struggling to be enough outlets for decent criticism, decent reviewing. Um, we have extraordinary writers, extraordinary filmmakers, extraordinary artists in all different genres. And they might have two or three places where their work gets reviewed. There are uh, so few avenues to hear it talked about in the kind of depth that we get out of a GabFest episode. And so that's what we look to for. That's why we're excited is in-depth, meaningful discussion about culture is is something of a revelation, I think. But And when we one day have one, it'll be a revelation for us, too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we have to invite Michael to stay and endorse, right? Please. Will you please? Well, it'll be a pleasure. Lovely. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dana. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have? An extra long N for a live show. Uh, all right. So, um, so I was trying to pick something Australian again for my endorsement as I did in our, our Sydney show. And, uh, Steve, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm going to flash a book at you. I'm wondering if you have any particular associations with this name right here. Oh my God. That man, he is the Courtney Barnett of <laughs> <laughs> freaking geniuses that I admire and want to be like. I love Clive James. I mean, no one can write like him. No one can talk like him. He, he was both a broadcaster and a critic, and he's a wonderful poet. I mean, just the greatest. Dana and I, right, I was talking out of school, but one night we were so lucky to go out to dinner with Clive James, and it was just he was just the rock hunter to end all rock hunters. He couldn't believe the like golden nuggets that just spill out of his <laughs> mouth every time he opens it. You just did my intro for me. <laughs> Were yeah. you really going to say golden nuggets? Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the thing that I would remark about that, about meeting him in person, is that the quality that comes across on the page in his writing was completely there in conversation as well, which was this combination of erudition and just utter self-deprecating, scabrous humor. You know, so he was sort of twinkling and witty and lovely, but not for a moment was he um, kind of snobbish or in love with himself, right? He was just just an utter delight to be around. So Clive James, if you know anything about his story, in addition to being a poet, critic, novelist, uh, broadcaster, he's also a translator. He's translated Dante. He's written song lyrics, and he's a really good poet. And uh, especially now, later in his life, he's written a few <laughs> wonderful volumes of poetry. Um, six years ago, when he was diagnosed with some form of leukemia, that was, that seemed that it was likely to be terminal in the near future. He wrote a book of poems called Sentence to Life that was, you know, essentially kind of a goodbye to the world that was heartbreaking and beautiful. And, uh, but he got six more years and he's, he's still alive and still doing okay and still writing. And he has a new book of poems called Injury Time that I picked up in Sydney. And, uh, 
And the wonderful thing about these poems is that, you know, the, the, the last book had this elegiac quality of, you know, here I am putting down my very last words. And this book in many places almost makes fun of that, of that self, you know, of that person who was ready to say goodbye to the world. But wait, I got six more years and, you know, I still have some more thoughts about things. And, uh, and so these poems are both kind of elegiac and heartbreaking at times and also very funny and, um, very, very aware of kind of pop culture from all eras, from classic Hollywood to YouTube. In fact, there's a couple poems about YouTube here. Um, but I'm going to read a poem. Let me find it here. Uh, that made me cry on the plane. Steve, sitting next to you, you were sleeping, so you didn't know. Um, a poem that he wrote to his, to his granddaughter. And, uh, maybe the reason it made me cry is that it's about her gymnastics and my daughter is a gymnast too. So this is called Front Flip Half Twist. In the video from Wales, my granddaughter steps to the wall's edge. Just a yard below, the beach begins, a long way from the water. A pause for thought. She then proceeds to throw a cartwheel through the air, and when she lands, stand upright on the sand, all done, no hands. She came to her miraculous mastery of this maneuver by a strict process. She still insists it was no mystery. Of more and more to reach down less and less, until one day the finished thing was there, made manifest entirely in midair. I, who can fly no longer, feel I'm flying when I watch her describe that graceful arc so perfectly alive. I can't be dying if I see this. The sky will not grow dark while she spins through it, setting it alight, making my day by staving off the night. Play it again, a poem that has taken its final form as radiant like this. Beginnings left behind but not forsaken is history beyond analysis. What starts by growing slowly like a pearl takes off and turns into a whirling girl. Like a pearl. Mm -hmm. yeah. Something I would just note about that poem that I wanted to say beforehand, and maybe you hear it in the reading, is that he has this ability to do something that's that's really rare in poetry. Actually, it's something that Lin-Manuel Miranda can do, too, where he writes a perfectly conversational sentence, and yet it rhymes perfectly. So you almost don't notice that that poem rhymes until you start reading it out loud. Yeah, it's wonderful. Absolutely. We sometimes have an ambivalent relationship with our expatriate artists when they go elsewhere, but Clive James's voice is so distinctive and so distinctively Australian, and when you read him on the page and when you even you hear someone else read it, the accent kind of comes through and there's something very kind of familiar and beautiful about that. My favorite poem of his has the line, which is similarly conversational, the book of my enemy has been remaindered and I am glad. <laughs> <laughs> that was awesome. Julia Turner, what do you have? Uh, I'm going to recommend something that I have technically already recommended to the plus membership uh, when we talked about books that people must read a few weeks ago, disallowed. But it's what's so your what's your what's your fallback? <laughs> I'm not you, doing the fallback. You do back. have a fallback. Yeah. I do, but I'm not doing it, Steve. You can't cow me. <laughs> I've seen Wonder Woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, it's just so pertinent to our final conversation with Michael that I had to do it. So one of my favorite books is a book that's actually kind of uncharacteristic for me to like because it's very gauzy and sort of theoretical and um it's not as sturdy as the stuff I'm usually drawn to. It's the book Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino uh, and it's a bunch of imagined conversations between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo 
and KubeCon says, Marco, please tell me about all the cities you visited. And then there's just a set of very teensy tiny stories where he describes each city. But my favorite is the passage where he describes uh, the city of Pira, because it's about that sense of what you think something is before you encounter it. And I'm just going to read a brief passage. For a long time, Pira, to me, was a fortified city on the slopes of a bay, with high windows and towers, enclosed like a goblet, with a central square deep as a well, with a well in its center. I had never seen it. It was one of the many cities where I had never arrived that I had conjured up through its name, Euphrasia, Odile, Margara, Catulia. Pira had its place among them, different from each of them, and like each of them, unmistakable to the mind's eye. The day came when my travels took me to Pira. As soon as I set foot there, everything I had imagined was forgotten. Pira had become what is Pira, and I thought I had always known that the sea is invisible from the city, hidden behind a dune of the low-rolling coast, that the streets are long and straight, that the houses are clumped at intervals, not high, and they are separated by open lots with stacks of lumber and with sawmills, that the wind stirs the veins of the water pumps. From that moment on, the name Pira has brought to my mind this view, this light, this buzzing, this air, in which a yellowish dust flies. Obviously, the name means this and could mean nothing but this. My mind goes on containing a great number of cities I have never seen and will never see, names that bear with them a figure or a fragment or a glimmer of an imagined figure. The city high above the bay is also there still with a square enclosing the well, but I can no longer call it by a name nor remember how I could ever have given it a name that means something entirely different. It's a great book. You should read it. That was that was beautiful, but are you ready for the ultimate dick move? <laughs> sure. Genghis Khan, not Kublai Khan. I think it's the reverse. Is it really Kublai Khan? Did I get double reverse dick moved on myself? <laughs> Possibly. Right, we'll look well, it up. We'll look it up. I was really Michael hoping the ultimate dick move would have been Calvino was telling me when I asked him about that. <laughs> like I, I was hoping for a name drop, but Genghis Khan was not where I thought you were going. No, yeah. Calvino always hated that book. Is worst. Yeah. Uh, Michael, what do you have? Uh, I've cheated a bit because I've got a book for each of you. So uh, it Ooh. struck me that when we have preconceptions of a culture, there's no better way past it than to read the literature of that place. And there are so many extraordinary Australian writers, some of whom travel internationally and are published elsewhere and others of whom don't and i think dana you said it when talking about why courtney is such an extraordinary artist that capacity for specificity for writing about your world in a specific place in kind of intimate detail and not caring if the people on the other side of the world have heard of preston because you know they're going to understand it at a kind of personal level is what characterizes our best literature so i've chosen three three books amongst many uh, for each of you. I've got Elizabeth Harrower's The Watchtower for you, Stephen. Harrower wrote this back in the 60s and the book came out, uh, was quite well received and then disappeared without a trace, went out of print as so many works of Australian literature do. It's an extraordinary, beautiful, psychological literary work about two sisters uh, and it is a masterpiece. Harrower's still alive and uh, is in her late 80s and has suddenly had this kind of career revival as she's been discovered again. And she's an extraordinary Australian writer and will give you a different idea of Sydney. Not an altogether pleasant one, which is unfortunate. <laughs> uh, but you can't control these things sometimes. Um, 
Dana, for you, I've chosen Kenneth Cook's Wake and Fright. If you haven't seen the film, the film is truly disturbing. I have not seen it. Um, but, oh, there's a whole lot of really sick people in the audience. <laughs> who, this is a book that we couldn't recommend to you before you came to Australia because you never would have come. But it captures uh, themes of Australian masculinity and alcoholism and is kind of miserable and depraved and about the city and the outback and what lies beneath the veneer of Australian hospitality. And it's a whole lot of fun. We'll read it on the plane back. Yeah, r- read it when you're leaving us, not uh, not before we say, just one more beer, Dana. It'll be fine. Um and Julia, I've chosen Helen Garner's The Spare Room. Helen Garner is an extraordinary Australian writer. Oh, hey, excellent. Um, that may be Helen in the audience. Hi. <laughs> if ever there's a human being who never hooted the sound of their own name, it's Helen Garner. <laughs> she is an extraordinary writer and a really amazing essayist and journalist. This is actually one of her novels, um, but it is a beautiful story about uh, a protagonist whose name is Helen, many of whose biographical details match the authors, but who has a friend who's dying of cancer and who she's spending time with. And it's a beautiful book. And if you like it, I suggest you go to the journalism and essays as well. So three books, just because your luggage I know is already full of plush toys of Australian (laughs) animals. Put this on top and look a little more respectable. So (laughs) Thank you so much. I note that all three endorsements have gotten applause, rounds of applause. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm watching you, Melbourne. Um, so I, I, I um, occasionally do travel writing, and um, I just um, I feel as though, and I go try to go naive. Um, I try not to gin up any uh, biases to be confirmed before I go to a place, and I l- try to look for something elemental in the way people walk or you know, or a quality of light or something. And um, I think my finest moment uh, was when I went to uh, uh, Buenos Aires and um, I was walking along and the uh, wind was coming off uh, the plata and it was so freshening. And I felt at that moment, I was in this place that the spirit of the place was kind of animating my experience at last. And I took out my notebook and my pen and I wrote down, I wonder if Buenos Aires is known for its good air, <laughs> question mark. And I, and I looked at the sentence, and I just shook my head and said, I, f- I fucking suck as much as people think I fucking suck. And I quietly put the notebook back in my pocket. So with that in mind, I do feel as though... I, uh, in addition to the completely mind-bending jet lag that you get when you come from the United States to um, Australia, once you start to get over that, you you realize that you're you're seasonally mirrored, right? And and I was walking around today or yesterday or one of the days, and you get that first really serious hint of sweater weather and a little glancing winter light, um, and that was when I had this unmistakable sense of where I was, um, and it reminded me of uh, one of the things that I love most in the world. Um, to me, the most characteristic thing about the Luxmiths isn't the bounciness or wit of their music, but um, it's that many of their songs right towards the end of them suddenly slow down. They actually change time signature um, and they become con- contemplative uh, and they drop a lyric of such piercing melancholy on you. And I felt before I ever came to Melbourne that I knew something true 
and not biased about your city because of that music. Um, I uh, am here to tell you that they are just truly one of the great bands. I've been proselytizing for them for probably close to 15 or 20 years now in the United States. Um, and I think there may be a locksmith or two in the audience, but I just, I just want to tell you, your music has meant, I mean, I think I might cry. Like your music has meant so much to me. And this is actually a true story. I, I discovered it at Kim's video on West 4th Street in Manhattan. It was just playing over the thing. And I was like, this is fucking awesome. What is this? And I bought the CD. I went on this like 2001. And um, I was like, who are these guys? And I went on the internet and you were playing that night at, um, I don't, fuck, where would it have been? Like one of those great downtown grunge venues. And I went and saw it. It was one of the best shows I've ever seen. So face-to-face, if you are actually in the audience, I love your music. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. It really has improved my life immeasurably. Thank you. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Julia, thank you. I looked it up. It was Kubla. <laughs> that was that was a slow-mo Wonder Woman own right there. <laughs> I knew it was Kubla all along, and I did that just for you. Dana, thank you so much. As always. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page at slate.com slash culturefest. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Dana Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. You can check out an entire roster of like and unlike shows at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. Melbourne, you fucking rock. I love it here. Thank you so much for coming out to see our show. Oh.